Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. My pleasure. Um, so I'm John Mulhall. I work at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I run the Sexual and Reproductive Medicine Program. It's all I've been doing for 24 years, sex and fertility. And about 30% of my practice is low T, working at a cancer center. Obviously, a lot of chemotherapy exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's some resources. I, uh, the guidelines is on uh, uh, the AUA website, uh, AUA guidelines at a glance. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my handle is Save Your Sex Life. Uh, some disclosures here. The most important disclosures are at the bottom of the screen. I was, in fact, the chairperson of the AUA Testosterone uh, Deficiency and Treatment Guidelines. And to be on the, a member of that guideline panel, there were 13 of us. We had to have zero uh, testosterone um, company conflicts. Uh, and that's those conflicts, that absence of conflicts had to continue for 12 months after completion of the guideline, which was uh, a year ago. And uh, to date, I have no uh, testosterone company uh, conflicts whatsoever. A few caveats. Um, I think we need to move away from the term hypogonadism um, to testosterone deficiency. That's what the AOA guidelines uses. Um, hypogonadism is an old concept with, that embraces low T and fertility problems. Uh, and I think we should move to testosterone therapy rather than testosterone replacement and testosterone supplementation therapy. And they're the terminology that has been used in, um, in the guidelines. Testosterone deficiency is not the same as low T. I'll talk to you about that when I present some of the guideline statements. The symptomatology is incredibly nonspecific. It's shared with chronic stress, chronic fatigue, and um, depression, for example. So the symptoms are very nonspecific. We just don't know what a patient's physiological set point is. They come in at 65 years of age. I don't know what their T level was at 30. And of course, the delta in their T over the course of their, um, those 30 years is really important. If they start at 700 and they're now 350, that's a problem. If they started at 380 and they're now 300, that's much less of a problem. So that's the issue. And of course, we could get into a big discussion about whether every man at 40 years of age should be screened or not. I think that may not be cost efficient, but there are good medical um, the reasons, rationales for considering that. And then T product labeling, of course, when it comes to the prostate cancer population, and we will not spend a lot of time talking about prostate cancer today. And if we continue to do the Empire series beyond the COVID resolution, I'm happy to come back at some point in time and talk about testosterone therapy in the prostate cancer population. So let's start about why. Why would we be worried about um, uh, testosterone efficiency and, and testosterone therapy? And the problem with testosterone, of course, is it has the label of being a sex steroid. And I think most primary care physicians and even the medical oncologists at Memorial will think of it very much in terms of being a, a, a hormone used for improving libido and um, erectile problems. Of course, that's not really what's going on. Very briefly, this is a, one of many studies we could talk about epidemiologic, but probably the most famous, the Baltimore Longitudinal Aging Study. And the bottom line is that there's a reduction in total and free testosterone levels as we age. Uh, it is estimated it's about a 10 to 15% drop per decade in life over after 30 years of age. So everyone gets a change. We have people who change 25% over a decade who we've had longitudinal T levels on. So uh, this is something that's uh, definitely an issue. As we age, our T levels will drop. The symptoms and signs, we talked about non-specificity. The symptoms uh, decrease energy, afternoon fatigue, decrease strength, decrease endurance, irritability, depression. Spontaneous tearfulness is an interesting uh, symptom. If you see somebody in your office who's spontaneously tearful, uh, we routinely check a T level. And it's not the only cause of, of that problem, but it is something to keep an eye on. Decreased exercise response. I used to work out and respond. I much less muscle bulk and tone now than I used to. Uh, decreased work productivity and erectile dysfunction and decreased sex drive. And I have to say, going out on a limb, that I think that T is a, a very minor hormone when it comes to erectile function. And you need very little T to actually generate good erectile function. Um, and I don't think T is a great treatment for ED. Uh, let me just go back to signs. So sarcopenia, loss of muscle, fat gain, particularly centrally, that visceral central adiposity is the fat that causes diabetes. Bone density loss, elevated hemoglobin A1C, and anemia at a cancer center. Uh, we have many men, let's say post-stem cell or bone marrow transplant, who are persistently anemic, who go on T and they're with further T deficiency, and their anemia improves significantly. So if you see somebody with unexplained anemia, just think, um, you know, go to a cobbler, get a pair of shoes. But as a urologist, men's health specialist, if you see somebody with unexplained anemia, you could weigh in and say, have you checked a testosterone level? 
Um, just I could put up, we could do the entire talk on TN and, and its impact, but this is just looking at the odds ratio for development of type 2 diabetes over a decade. And if you control for AIDS, cardiovascular disease, cigarette smoking, BMI, blood pressure, glucose, triglycerides, et cetera, these patients, that red box there, they have almost a twofold chance of developing uh, diabetes if they're baseline T, 10 years before at the start of the study, uh, their baseline T was under 450. So not even low, but in the low normal range. So um, I think T assessment is critically important. It's quite in interesting to me that most endocrinologists don't routinely check a T in a diabetic patient, um, but I would strongly encourage you, if you see an ED patient for any reason, whether it be cancer or ED or whatever, that you check a, a T level in them. This is probably the most important thing to look at. And this is the Molly Shores data from the VA, normal, equivocal, and low T levels. And the bottom line is that there's an increased um, uh, premature death rate in uh, men who've got uh, testosterone uh, deficiency. So this is something to bear in mind. So when we talk to our patients about testosterone therapy, we talk to them about osteoporosis. We talked about elevated hemoglobin A1C. We talked about premature cardiovascular events. And we say to them, this is the reason we're really interested in treating you with T. It's not your orgasmic intensity issues or your low libido or your erectile dysfunction. The risk and benefits of testosterone deficiency, um, the risks are cardiovascular events. There is um, a lot of evidence supporting low T and the risk for developing uh, myocardial infarction or, or stroke. Glycemic control issues, bone density loss. Interestingly, from a prostatectomy standpoint, we had an abstract accepted to the AUA this year, which wasn't presented, of course, that shows that if you have low T, uh, that you are increased risk of poor nerve recovery. Now, that low T has to be very low, under 200 nanograms per deciliter, but it's definitely an independent risk factor for poor nerve recovery and long-term erectile dysfunction. So I think we should be checking T levels in patients' periprostatectomy. Impaired PSA production, you need testosterone to make PSA. If somebody has a very low testosterone level, especially below saturation point, let's say below 200, they are incapable of generating an optimal PSA response. So you have to be careful in your post-prostatectomy patients who were 12 months after surgery and have a T level of 150 and their PSA is undetectable. You have to ask yourself the question, do they in fact have a non-detectable PSA? And we'll do a T challenge in these men in the office to boost their T and see what happens to their PSA. And I think you're aware almost certainly of the uh, large amount of literature now that links low testosterone to uh, the presence of higher grade and higher stage prostate cancer. What are the benefits of testosterone deficiency? None. Risks and benefits of T therapy? Well, there's an absence of long-term safety data in the prostate cancer population. The polycythemia rates vary between two and 14% or higher with intramuscular T compared to transdermal. Gynecomastia can occur, it's rare, it's usually related to high estradiol level and testosterone gets aromatase to, to estradiol. So I think be, be aware of that and be cognizant and uh, we check estradiol routinely on uh, tea therapy. There's no data that uh, being on tea uh, increases uh, major adverse cardiovascular events. There are three papers in the literature, the Weigand, uh, Basaria and the Finkel papers that are um, routinely and, and summarily just criticized for methodologic flaws and they're the only ones really that um, link uh, T-therapy to MACE, uh, but most of the literature is, is neutral or positive, in fact. And there's no increased risk of uh, venothromboembolic events based on the AUA guidelines evidence report. The benefits of T-therapy, of course, uh, potentially reduced uh, MACE uh, potential for optimization of glycemic control, bone mineral density preservation, and potentially in the prostatectomy population, in, uh, improvement in uh, nerve recovery. So who do we treat and why do we treat them? This is an important slide. These are the factors that impact upon T levels. Uh, there's definitely a circadian rhythm and um, there are some experts in the field who say, we just check a, a T level any time of the day, uh, especially in men over 50 because the circadian rhythm is blunted. But if you look at this, uh, the data here, you'll see T value at 8 a.m. in younger men is 20 to 25% higher in the morning than it is in the afternoon. And even in older men, it's uh, a mean, a mean of 10% higher in men who are aged 70 years. So that means that there are men who are 70 years of age who have significant changes uh, between morning and afternoon. So we routinely check T levels in every man before 10 o'clock in the morning. There's intra-individual variability that's largely based on the assays. Um, um, however, there is a value in checking more than one level. And you can see that if you use two to three measures, you reduce the variability quite dramatically. What about obesity? A five point increase in uh, BMI is equivalent to 10 years of aging. Um, but if you look at improvements in uh, weight loss in, in obese men, you'll see mean improvements that are fairly low in men who just lose um, standard weight loss. 
if you look at the bariatric population, there are significant changes in testosterone level when uh, men undergo bariatric surgery for morbid obesity. Exercise shows modest improvements in total T. I get this all the time. I'm sure you do too. About, uh, But I heard if I work out and my T level is going to go up, that's a true statement. But you can see the magnitude of the change there. Uh, and then very importantly, you should not be checking testosterone levels uh, in the middle of or at the end of an acute illness because there is literature that shows that T levels drop. Very important point on assays. I suspect that most of you don't know what testosterone assays being used at your institution. There are two major ways to measure total and there are three major ways to measure free. And the bottom line is that with the exception of liquid chromatography, max spectrometry, okay, used for total T and for equilibrium dialysis used for free, uh, there's significant coefficient of variation. So you take somebody's blood today, you check it today, same blood sample, you check it tomorrow, same blood sample, you check it the day after uh, using amino assays for total or a calculated level for free, you're at risk of seeing significant variation in those T levels. So because of the CV of 6% for LCMS and 7% for equilibrium dialysis, we insist in our patients doing LCMS for total T and equilibrium dialysis doing uh, for free testosterone checking. It is definitely more expensive to do this, but I think if you're basing a decision about testosterone therapy or monitoring patients on testosterone therapy, I just don't understand why you would be using anything other than those tests if they were available at your institution. So the definition, who is a candidate for testosterone therapy, I'll go through the statements here, but I'll also make some comments in a minute. So the guidelines panel suggested that a total T level less than 300 was a reasonable, and in the statement, that word is in there, reasonable cutoff for the diagnosis of low T, okay? If we don't know what his T level was 20 years ago, then it's impossible to find a perfect cutoff for an individual patient. Low T diagnosis, two total testosterone measurements on separate occasions, same lab, same assay in an early morning fashion. We did not put a time of the day in there because the literature wasn't clear in the evidence report, systematic review of the evidence. Um, so we talk about early morning fashion. Personally, we check it before 10 o'clock in the morning and we do not insist on our patients fasting, although many endocrinologists do, but the literature supporting fasting versus non-fasting is particularly weak. Testosterone deficiency diagnosis is made in the presence of low T levels combined with symptoms or signs. So that's important, the difference between low T and testosterone deficiency. And the use of validated instruments, of which there are several, is not recommended in routine clinical practice. So a few tips. The free testosterone level was not recommended uh, by the guidelines panel as the first means of defining testosterone deficiency. So it's in there as not being the first means. It is in there about you can use it in conjunction with your clinical judgment. Remember, guidelines are, are not a biblical dictum. They're, you're supposed to use your clinical judgment and your expertise in association with the guideline statements. The problem with the free T literature, uh, although some people would disagree with me, is that the literature is actually weak because of the poor accuracy of calculated and analog testing. So the literature doesn't have a lot of equilibrium analysis testing, but it is my anticipation that when equilibrium analysis becomes routine and studies are using that, that that might well become actually the means of defining testosterone deficiency in the future. There are definitely some men who have testosterone levels over 300 who are highly symptomatic or have signs who we know benefit from testosterone deficiency. The presumption is that they had very high levels earlier on in their life. And even though they're 380 or 400, uh, they in fact had higher levels before. And that's why they have osteopenia or that's why they have mildly elevated uh, hemoglobin A1C levels. I think you should make every attempt possible to use accurate and reliable assays. And I think you should know what your assays are at your institution. I think you should really give strong consideration to enforcing early morning blood draw rule. Patient comes in to see you at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's very easy to say, well, let's do a blood test now, as opposed to saying, um, you can go and have this done on another occasion before 10 o'clock in the morning. And Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp do uh, LCMS and equilibrium dialysis. So you could use those outside labs if necessary. And questionnaires are research tools in our practice. This is another important slide. These are the um, conditions where you should give serious consideration to checking testosterone levels. This is a, a guideline statement. Unexplained anemia, bone density loss, diabetes, exposure to chemo, testicular radiation, HIV AIDS, chronic narcotic use, male infertility, pituitary dysfunction, and chronic corticosteroid use. So these are all groups of men uh, who were the guidelines suggest that you get a T-level check. And I would suggest to you that if you're examining a man and he's got significant testicular atrophy, that you should do that also. But the literature is actually absent uh, on, on that group of patients. 
What about evaluation? So uh, if somebody is a low T, you should check their LH levels. LH levels will give you a sense for whether they've got hypo or hypergonadotrophic uh, hypogonadism. But it's also very useful if you're thinking of using uh, a serum, for example, called morphine citrate in defining whether they're going to be a reasonable or an excellent candidate for, uh, for clomiphene. You should measure prolactin if the patient has a low T or a low normal, with a low normal LH. So a low T and a low to low normal LH, uh, check a prolactin. If you have um, hyperprolactinemia, if you have an LH level that's 25, for example, hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, it's extremely unlikely you're going to have hyperprolactinemia. If you measure prolactin level, you should repeat it because there is a, a not an insignificant uh, error rate in, in prolactin testing due to some molecular issues with macro, macroprolactins. Um, and you should, if it's, if it's persistently elevated, then uh, evaluation by an endocrinologist or if you're a men's health specialist, uh, order a pituitary MRI. And uh, the guideline says measure estradiol and testosterone deficiency patients uh, with breast symptoms or gynecomastia prior to the commencement of T therapy. I think that's very reasonable. Uh, there wasn't enough evidence uh, to talk about using estradiol in men on treatment. I routinely check estradiol when men are on treatment. Remember, you need testosterone, you need estradiol uh, for bone health, both of them. Um, from a symptom improvement standpoint, if you look at the literature, um, this is what you can say based on guidelines from a, a may result in improvements. The data is uh, inconclusive. You can see the different symptoms that are listed here. The bottom line is that because the symptoms are nonspecific and because we don't know what the man's baseline T level is, it's very difficult to predict whether symptoms will improve and the time course of symptom improvement. On this slide, probably the most important point is uh, statement number 26, which you must discuss the risk of transference if you're using gels or creams. It's very, very important you do this from a medical legal standpoint. I was defending a urologist last year who prescribed testosterone to his patient. A uh, patient didn't follow the instructions. He was an older man. He looked after two granddaughters, six and eight years of age, both of whom went through puberty at that age because of transference from the man's hands. Uh, from using transdermal testosterone therapy. So be very, very cautious. I would strongly encourage you to document the risk uh, that you've had talked about the risk of transference risk uh, in, your, uh, in your notes. Uh, hematocrit hemoglobin, prior to offering testosterone therapy, you should measure an H&H and inform the patient regarding the risk of polycythemia. That's super important. If the T level is over 50 at baseline, they should be evaluated. The first evaluation we now do is we give them obstructive sleep apnea questionnaires. If they're positive, we do a home sleep apnea test. It used to be sent everyone to a hematologist. If the person's questionnaires are normal or his HSAT is normal uh, and it's not obstructive sleep apnea, then we would send them to see a hematologist with a baseline crit of 50 or more. If they're on T and their crits over 54, uh, you're recommended to intervene. And that intervene is usually first line make sure their T levels are therapeutic. Second line, make sure they don't have sleep apnea. And third line, see a hematologist and consideration for phlebotomy, okay? In patients who are over 50, they're on our radar when they're between 50 and 54. And we will sometimes intervene if they're 52, if they're trending upwards and we're worried that we'll, they will get to, uh, T, uh, to chromatocrit levels over 54% in the more long-term. Uh, we have patients who, for various reasons, are 58%. Um, and of course, the risk there is increased viscosity of the blood and potential for clots. I have to say, in 24 years of practice, it's very rare for me to see somebody who has a venothromboembolic event on testosterone therapy, irrespective of what the hematocrit is. Um, there is no definitive evidence linking T-therapy to VTE. That is from the AUA guidelines. And even though the label in 2014 was changed, when you look at the literature critically, it is safe to say, based on a systematic review, the AUA guideline evidence report, which was published in 2018, that there is no increased risk of VTE, as far as we can see in the literature. What about cardiovascular events? You need to say to a patient, if he has uh, testosterone deficiency, that that alone is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And you can see the odds ratios of various atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors uh, at the bottom of the page here. But uh, it is incumbent upon you and somebody with low T to say to them, testosterone deficiency is a risk factor for cardiovascular events. What about testosterone therapy mace? I kind of touched on this already. And the problem is that if you include the Finkel, Weigand, and Basaria papers, they sway the literature dramatically. And so therefore we couldn't say definitively whether T-therapy increases or decreases the risk of mace. If you look at the bottom of the page, you'll see that there's many papers showing a reduction in mace, but most of the papers are neutral. 
So I feel very comfortable saying to my patients that I do not believe that testosterone therapy increases your risk of cardiovascular events. And certainly my clinical experience would support that. What about T uh, therapy in the patient with prior uh, cardiovascular events? And this is a complicated statement and you'll see it's expert opinion because there is no good literature. And so we base the AWA guideline statement on the inclusion criteria for the Snyder T therapy trials, which is basically T therapy should not be commenced for three to six months in patients with a history of a myocardial event or cerebrovascular accident. We've had a couple of patients in the last year who are profoundly symptomatic with T levels of 100 within three months of um, a myocardial event. And we've actually started at three months after that. This is another very important point. The, the statements read that testosterone deficiency patients interested in fertility should have a reproductive health evaluation. That's essentially adding an FSH to your blood work and getting a semen analysis. It's not a fancy thing. You don't have to send them to an andrologist. If you're concerned, then of course, send them to somebody who specializes in reproductive urology. The long-term impact of exogenous T and spermatogenesis should be discussed with patients who are interested in future fertility. And exogenous testosterone therapy should not be prescribed to men who are currently trying to conceive. When you give somebody exogenous testosterone, you get gonadotropin suppression, and that gonadotropin suppression results, results in uh, azospermia in the vast majority of men within three to six months after starting T-therapy. So you have to be very, very careful of that. If you look at the contraception literature, there is recovery in nearly all men, but that contraception literature is in men who were healthy and were not testosterone deficient going into the study. So in the testosterone deficient man who goes on T, if you have to do that or he insists, I would strongly recommend you document that the patient has been made aware of the rare but distinct occurrence of permanent infertility in men who are using long-term testosterone therapy in an exogenous fashion. Uh, for the patient who's interested in fertility, then aromatase inhibitors, HCG, and SERMs are ideal for these patients as a first-line therapy. So if you look at the uh, WHO Task Force on Contraception, which studied 271 healthy men, and they're getting 200 milligrams of intramuscular testosterone and nanthate uh, every week for 12 months, inadequate suppression of spermatogenesis occurred in only 2%. So 98% of men had a significant impact uh, on their spermatogenesis using exogenous T. If you look at the LU data, looking at 30 contraception studies, semen analyses were assessed monthly. You look at the recovery here, and you can see 100% of those men in the contraception studies had recovery of spermatogenesis uh, in the semen, uh, sperm in the semen within 24 months. But these are not the patients necessarily that you and I see for testosterone deficiency. They're healthy. They had a reasonable fertility going into the study. So I think be very, very careful and be cognizant of the, uh, the potential for long-term fertility problems. And at least say to patients that if you come off your T and you want to get pregnant, it might take you two years for that to happen. What about the prostate? So this is an important statement. Um, we made the state, we put the statement together in conjunction with uh, Valentine Carter from Hopkins and um, Peter Clark, who's the chair of the, the, the uh, Postgraduate Guidelines Committee, the Practice Guidelines Committee, because we wanted an oncologist to weigh in on whether this was appropriate or not. And what we wanted to do is not just protect the patient, but protect the urologist. And we don't want you giving tea to somebody who's at higher risk of having prostate cancer baseline. If you remember Abe Morgan Taylor's data back in JAMA in 1999, when he biopsied men who were testosterone deficient, 14% of those men with PSA levels below four, 14% had prostate cancer in the prostate before they were going on tea. So whether you know it or not, every day we're giving testosterone to men with perfectly normal PSAs who probably have prostate cancer. Okay, so the recommendation is that you measure a PSA, and if you have very low levels of testosterone, if you look at the TRIAS registry data, if you have very low levels of testosterone below 250, you're likely to see a PSA change. And certainly if your T levels below 150, you should tell the patient, I expect to see a PSA change in you. If you have higher testosterone levels, 280, 300 in the symptomatic man, it's very likely you will not see major PSA changes. Uh, this is just a diagrammatic representation to show you that when you take men with testosterone deficiency or adults and you give them testosterone, their prostate volume changes back to normal for our average for their age. So there's no massive um, volume changes and no increased risk of urinary retention um, in, in these patients. What about testosterone therapy and prostate cancer development? There is an absolute absence of any evidence linking testosterone therapy to the development of prostate cancer. And if you look at the evidence report and the meta-analysis of seven randomized controlled trials, there was no significant increased rate in the diagnosis of prostate cancer. And another meta-analysis by Caleb supports that. So when you're giving man testosterone or your primary care physicians are speaking to you about, is it safe? The guideline statement says definitively, 
based on the literature, there is no increase of prostate cancer in men who are getting testosterone therapy. Uh, what about T in the prostate cancer patient? That's a much more complicated uh, question. And of course, there just is not enough data to uh, quantify the risk-benefit ratio. Saying that, we've been giving men at Memorial um, testosterone therapy after prostatectomy, after radiation, on active surveillance now for between 10 to 15 years. And we've got 550 men with Gleason 6, Gleason 7 cancer on testosterone therapy uh, with very low rates of recurrence, actually rates of recurrence lower than what you would anticipate based on standard BCR rates. This is the famous Lenny Marks data. Uh, if you just concentrate on the left-hand panel, these are men who get placebo or testosterone, serum levels on top, prostate tissue levels on bottom, they biopsy the prostate. And what they showed is men on testosterone, of course they get a serum increase in their testosterone level, but no change in their prostate tissue levels. So these are tips for informed consent. And I would strongly recommend that you counsel patients and consider writing these down um, in your record, your chart, your EMR. Discuss the possibility that symptoms or signs will not change. Uh, discuss baseline hematocrit significance and its changes on treatment, polycythemia. Discuss VTE concerns and that there is no evidence to suggest that testosterone therapy causes venothromboembolic events. You need to define fertility interest. And of course, you cannot use uh, patient age as a means of defining that. You need to really ask patients, uh, are you finished having a family? Are you interested in having a family? Uh, for those of us who work in Manhattan, of course, uh, we know that we have plenty of 65, 70-year-old men who walk in with 35-year-old girlfriends and wives. So you need to define that up front. You must, 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 if there's one thing you come away from this talk, remembering, you must discuss transference risk. It's a huge issue. So be very, very careful. Discuss the link between low T and cardiovascular risk. Discuss the majority of data showing no increased cardiovascular event rates on testosterone therapy. Discuss PSA and prostate volume changes, which are minimal, and discuss the absence of data linking testosterone therapy to prostate cancer. And I think this is a good cheat sheet for you when you're talking to patients about testosterone therapy. So how do we do this? Guidelines say that you should not use uh, alkylated oral testosterone, methyl testosterone, for example. We've gone beyond that in this country. There are two oral testosterone um, uh, agents, uh, one available and one uh, in development. Uh, we recommend that you use commercially manufactured testosterone products over compounded when possible, when possible. And there we understand that there are financial implications that for some patients. But just because uh, the commercially available agents have proprietary uh, permeators, so that's how, you know, 80, 85% of men on transdermal therapy will get therapeutic levels because it's a media uh, permeator. That is not, those permeators are not present in the compounded drugs. And that's why compounded drugs are often 10 to 20% testosterone as opposed to 1 to 2%. And the bioavailability and the variability that you get in serum levels on a day-to-day -day basis with compounded agents is, uh, is concerning. And uh, if you read the guidelines, you'll see that Ethan Grover some very some very interesting work looking at how much testosterone is in is in compounded agents, and in some of the cases, there's no testosterone in the compounded agent. These are the baseline T labs. Get a total testosterone level early morning using LCMS if possible. And if that is low, then we get a total and free level. We get an SHBG level. We get an SHBG level because if somebody has an uh, a free T level that is not synchronous with their total T level, if it's non-concordant, we want to look and see if they got high SHBG level. So their T level is, is, uh, is normal and their free is super low because their SHBG level is high. Maybe they have HIV disease, for example, as a cause of high SHBG, a very common cause of high levels of SHBG. We check an LH and if fertility is a conservative, younger men, even if fertility is not a concern, will get an FSH also. We'll measure a baseline estradiol level, even if they don't have breast symptoms, because on treatment, I'm going to look at their E2 level and I want to know what their baseline level is. And then in men 40 years of age or older, we'll check a PSA, and then we always check uh, hematocrit. What about adjunctive testing? If somebody has low testosterone and testosterone deficiency and you're going to treat them, then I would strongly recommend you get a bone densitometry at baseline and you measure their hemoglobin A1C. If somebody has equivocal levels, so a man has a level of 380, 420, got some symptoms. Should I, should I not treat them? Then I would use these two tests as surrogate markers of testosterone deficiency. And if somebody with an equivocal level has an elevated hemoglobin C, undiagnosed, didn't know he was diabetic, or has an abnormal bone density, I will give consideration to treating those men with testosterone therapy, even if they've got equivocal T levels. The therapeutic modalities, of course, are you know protein at the moment, transdermal, subcutaneous, intramuscular, intranasal, and then the alternative therapies. And how do we choose which therapy? I think the first thing you want to do is what's the insurance coverage? 
I think the second thing is transference risk. And if you, if a young man, a 35-year-old man who's got a two and a three-year-old at home, we will not give him gels. We will not give him Axeron. We will not give him Fortessa under the arm, on the thigh. We will just not give him that. We think that is very high risk for transference. And I think because of the hands and not washing the hands properly. So uh, we have this conversation very seriously with our patient. Define fertility interest. If they're interested in fertility now or in the future, um, I would strongly discourage you from using exogenous testosterone therapy and consider using one of the alternative strategies. And then ultimately it's patient preference. 65 year old man with low T, symptomatic, he can use gels if there's no fertility interest and no transference risk. He can use intramuscular tea. Uh, he can use patches or he can use clomiphene if he has a, a low LH level. So it's really patient preference in the final analysis. Target range on therapy, clinicians should adjust testosterone therapy dosing to achieve a total T level in the middle turtle of the normal reference range. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, that's about five to 600. So that's our target range. They don't need to be 800, but you don't want somebody at, at 350, even if they start at 150. If you're trying to define symptom improvement, you really should be having somebody in the middle turtle of a range at least. And the reason we chose the middle turtle is that if you look at the literature on, with testosterone therapy, that's where most of the patients end up on treatment if you look at their, their levels. What about follow-up labs? Uh, get a total and free T level. Uh, we get an SHPG level because we're going to look at the free level and see uh, is there a reason why perhaps the total and free are, are discordant. LH, LH levels are particularly important in patients who are on clomiphene citrate, for example, because that will help you define whether the clomiphene citrate is working or not. Get an estradiol level. I routinely do that. Uh, hemoglobin, hematocrit, of course, and then PSA if an appropriate age or an appropriate uh, type of patient. Uh, there are several uh, proprietary gels and creams, and there are several generic versions of those, as you know. There's an approximately an 80% rate of achieving therapeutic testosterone levels. Um, ensure application prior to labs. It's in, still impressive to me, many years in practice, how many men. I went to get my blood work done, but they didn't apply their um, their gel. The other thing to be careful of is somebody who's applying, let's say, a, a testum or an androgel or one of the generic forms of them, and they're rubbing on their biceps area. Be careful they don't sweep down onto their antecubital fossa, and you then get a phone call from the lab saying this man's testosterone level is 3,000 because it picked testosterone off, uh, off the skin, and it's contaminated. So we tell our patients, the day of your blood work, make sure you come down no lower than mid-biceps and uh, tell, tell the, um, the phlebotomist that you're, you're using a gel. Um, discuss transference, make sure the patients wash their hands very carefully. We usually start at half maximum dose, but let's say, for example, in our bilateral orchiectomy patients, we'll always start at maximum dose, and 50% of those men will not respond well to transdermal therapy and will need intramuscular tea. And do your best to, or have them do their best to avoid hair-bearing areas because it's, it tends not to get absorbed as well. Intramuscular tea program, uh, the whole peak and, trough, trough, peak and trough concept. So you give somebody an injection of a peak and then a trough over the course of time. Uh, the standard approach historically when I was a resident was 200 milligrams of uh, testosterone intramuscularly every 14 days. Big peak. And then the last three to five days, patients are subtherapeutic. Uh, so we do seven-day cycles now. And uh, the timing of our labs, we check peak labs. We check a lab 18 to 24 hours after the intramuscular injection. Uh, most urologists will check at mid-cycle. The problem for me with a mid-cycle level is, let's say the level is 500. It doesn't tell me how it was the uh, peak level too high, and it doesn't tell me what their trough is. Um, there are certain patients who, in whom we check a peak level who have an excellent peak level who are complaining of testosterone crash on day six and seven of the cycle. I'm just back to my old self, symptomatic at the end of the cycle. And then those patients will check a trough level uh, to see exactly what their T level is. And there are some patients who, despite the fact that most of the patients are on a seven-day cycle, we will use a five or six-day cycle in some of those patients with testosterone crash. Our starting dose used to be 100 milligrams every seven days. We actually now use 60 milligrams every seven days because since uh, employing equilibrium dialysis over the last two years, we see that uh, most of the men on 60 milligrams have a very therapeutic free testosterone level. Maintenance labs every six months once they're stabilized, and we always discuss uh, extra discussion with the intramuscular T patients about polycythemia, given that the rates of polycythemia are highest in patients with intramuscular T level. There's debate about whether these um, polycythemia rates are related to um, the peak level or to the, uh, the C average over the cycle. Clomiphene citrate is that uh, we use this a lot in our practice. I'm sorry about the arrows. Um, so it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It blocks pituitary and uh, estradiol receptors, decreased estradiol negative feedback at the pituitary level, and that leads to LH secretion increases. So if you have a baseline LH that's very high, let's say the normal range is 1 to 10 and your level is 10, then you can expect that the patient's going to get less of a benefit from that than if their baseline LH level was 2 
for example. So in our practice, those patients who are best candidates for clomiphene and who are the best responders to clomiphene have LH level six or less. It's not that we won't use it between six and 10, but it's clear to me that the response rate in that population is lower. You need a functional pituitary gland. If you don't have a pituitary gland, you've had pituitary XRT or transpenoidal hypophysectomy, then you're not going to respond to clomiphene. You can't. There's about a 65% success rate in carefully chosen people. So it's not as high as transdermal or intramuscular by any means, but it is an effective strategy that avoids any negative effects on spermatogenesis and avoids any testicular atrophy. And again, it's best used in men with low to normal um, levels. Our starting dose is 25 milligrams, half of 50 milligram pill every other day. It is a receptor modulator, okay? So it's not active in the blood at the moment. It is a receptor modulator. And because of that, there is a tachyphylaxis rate. It's about 10% of our patients who will become tachyphylactic to clomiphene. That tachyphylaxis rate is higher if people are using it daily and at higher doses. So that's why we start at 25 milligrams every other day. It is our experience that if people are going to respond to clomiphene citrate, they will tend to do it to 25 milligrams every other day and moving up to 50 milligrams every other day, which is a second strategy, or 50 milligrams every day tends to improve them not very well. So that's our starting dose. The LH level helps guide decision-making. If on clomiphene, the T level remains low and the LH level remains low or normal, we change the clomiphene dose. If their LH level has, hasn't bumped, let's say it starts at two and now it's 2.8, then we're gonna increase their dose. However, if their T level is low, but their LH level is high, you know that their pituitary is responding. But if their T level is low, their testes can't respond. There is no point changing the clomiphene dose. 25 milligrams out of the day, based on LH of two, on treatment is based on LH, is LH level goes to 10, and we have many men that go to 15. There's no point changing this clomiphene dose if his T level remains low in the setting of a high LH in response to clomiphene. You need to move them to exogenous T. Minimal adverse effects. We're using one-eighth the maximum dose. Maximum dose is 100 milligrams a day. We're using one-eighth maximum dose, and we just don't really see any side effects. And we check their testosterone labs in four weeks. HCG, you do not need a pituitary. So for men who've had a hypophysectomy, who've got low T, who are interested in fertility, HCG is the treatment of choice and basically is perceived by the body as LH. And of course, it's an excellent strategy. The problem is it's an intramuscular or a subcutaneous injection. Uh, three times a week, and our starting dose is 1,500 with a range of one to 2,000. It is a 48-hour effect, so if you're giving 5,000 units once a week, that's not going to help the patient beyond two or three days. It will have an impact, of course, but it's not going to optimize this T response. So it's basically every other day, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if the patient has trouble remembering every other day, and we'll use 1,500, uh, 1500 units, and we check their testosterone levels at four weeks. Uh, just as a, a quick point, beware of testis cancer patients on HCG who are having HCG levels checked for, for their monitoring. Uh, we'll stop that uh, um, a few weeks before their HCG measurement, um, just so there's no confusion. Aromatase inhibitors are used um, more frequently by fertility doctors because we're trying to preserve fertility uh, and not give exogenous tea. Anastrozole, uh, aletrozole, tamoxifen, megastrol, and testolactone. We use anastrozole, which is arimidex, of course. Uh, blocks aromatase and it blocks the conversion of T to estradiol. Uh, E2 is required for, e for bone density. So we don't want the E2 level to be completely suppressed. So I see people coming to see me who are on T, high dose T, they're on uh, um, uh, Rimidex, and they're on a milligram a day, and their estradiol level is less than five. That's the lower limit of detectability in our lab. And it's, low, uh, it's, it's undetectable. That's not good for their bones. So if you're going to use uh, anastrozole, we would start them at half a milligram three times a week, and then we'll titrate that based on their estradiol levels uh, when they're on that. We try and maintain the levels at 20 to 40, and again, T levels, uh, T labs at four weeks after initiation. What about monitoring? Uh, you should measure initial follow-up T level after an appropriate interval, two weeks for gels, four weeks for clomiphene, HCG, and intramuscular T in our practice. T levels should be measured every six to 12 months. I think it's very important to keep an eye on their crit, keep an eye on their PSA if they're a PSA type patient, keep an eye on their estradiol level, and make sure they're still therapeutic. Um, consider cessation of T therapy three to six months after commencement when normalization of to total T levels uh, occurs, but there's no symptom or sign improvement. You got the guy's levels 380. He's got some symptoms. You're not convinced. I think a three-month trial is very reasonable um, before making a decision whether the patient uses it long-term. Let me make one other comment about clomiphene. There is a group of men using clomiphene who have excellent T levels, who get no symptomatic response, who stop clomiphene, 
who go on transdermal tea, for example, get the same tea levels as they did on clomiphene, but who are much more symptomatically improved. So bear that in mind with the clomiphene group. If they have good levels, but they don't feel better, it might be that their symptoms were not due to testosterone deficiency, but it might also be that it's just the clomiphene effect. So final slide, testosterone therapy is an effective and safe therapeutic strategy in a carefully selected patient. When managed by a clinician experienced in testosterone deficiency, it's management and the appropriate monitoring of patients while on T-therapy. Um, I don't know that we've got much time, Gina, to have any questions, but I'm happy to answer a couple of questions if we've time. Well, thank you so much. That was, that was a very thorough, comprehensive, and high-yield uh, talk. Uh, many people have asked about the availability of your slides, and I want to remind everyone that the recordings are posted on the Empire website. Um, also, as a credit to you, we have uh, nearly 115 people at seven, eight o'clock on a Friday morning. So um, pretty uh, impressive audience. My pleasure. We, <laughs> we do have um, some questions posted in the, in the chat box here that I'll pose to you. Um, one question comes from um, John Chapman. He writes, how often do, do, do you use testosterone therapy in oncology patients for the indication of anemia and symptoms related to low T? He says that um, some of his local oncologists oppose this approach, claiming that the changes are temporary and they will eventually improve. Um, and he follows it up with the second question, how do you decide which oncology patients are appropriate? So which oncology patients are appropriate? Basically, you just use your testosterone guidelines, right? Do they have a low T? Are they symptomatic and or have signs? So whether an oncology patient or not, we'll just follow. Now, it might be the sign is anemia. Okay, uh, we tried to get a trial off the ground with a bone marrow transplant uh, oncologist that never took place using clomiphene. So I think that um, if somebody has persistent anemia, is symptomatic, has a low T, I think it's very reasonable to consider a trial of T therapy. And you will know, you will find out within three months whether their anemia is responsive or not. And I have to tell you, it's worked many times in my practice. You need to be careful if it's a young male who was treated, let's say, for AML, who didn't bank sperm, who's interested in fertility, you probably would not want to give them exogenous tea, right? The challenge with the, um, the cancer patients who receive gonadotoxic therapy is that their LH levels are usually not normal. They usually have hypergonadotrophic hypogonadism. So clomiphene or HCG tend not to work well in those guys. And that's the whole Baylor concept now, which is not mainstream yet, but a uh, single retrospective analysis where you give them low-dose T and ACG to try to preserve the spermatogenesis. That is a strategy that I would strongly encourage you, if this is not what you do for a living, to have somebody who does this for a living manage that. Um, great. Another question involves uh, your, your management algorithm for patients with hypergonadotropic hypogonadism with a reproductive desire. Yeah. So the fact that they've got Klein filters, of course, will be, will be the major cause of that. The fact that they've got hypergonadotrophic hypogonadism, their LH and their FSH level are already elevated. You know, you're going to get a, a semen analysis and almost certainly they'll have impaired spermatogenesis and perhaps even azoospermia, right? So in those patients, you know, if they're azoospermic, um, the literature is pretty clear, about a 50% chance that they'll have sperm retrieved on TESI. We would not give them tea if they're interested in fertility. We would not give them tea until we at least discuss doing a TESI with them, pre-exogenous tea therapy. If they have elevated LH and FSH, they're not a candidate for um, uh, SERMs um, so, or HCG. So we would um, basically talk to them about doing a TESI. If they had a very altered TE ratio, you could try them on a NASTRAZOL, for example. Okay, But most of these patients are going to end up needing exogenous tea. And in those patients, we would do a TESI first and see if we could extract sperm for them, if they're interested in fertility. Okay, another um, member of the audience asks about the impact of measuring testosterone uh, fasting. How important is it, it for them to fast prior to the measurement? Um, this person cites uh, variation in some of the measurements he's obtained for patients, presumably at the same time of day, um, stating that there was um, one was fasting was 183 days later when when 
I'm sorry, when they weren't fasting and uh, 186 and fasting 300. I get it. I think that's far less likely related to their fasting status and much more related to the coefficient of variation in the assay used for testosterone measurement, if it was even the same assay used, right? So we get people going to different labs. Their primary care doctors uh, order a lab at one uh, T lab at one, uh, one laboratory and a, another physician's order at another lab. And you cannot compare apples and oranges. The literature is completely unclear. The problem with doing that study is what food are you giving them? And so there's no standardization about what diet they're given before they have versus before they're not, get, they're not getting food beforehand. So it's very, very difficult literature to interpret. It's very weak. The endocrinologists will say they should be fasting. Uh, we've never done that and we don't do that. My understanding is that most urologists are most probably not doing that. Okay, we have another question from Alex Small. Um, stating, you know, there's some buzz about a potential link between testosterone levels and COVID infection or COVID um, risk of COVID acquisition. What is your expert take on this? And have you adjusted your, your practices after the outbreak accordingly? Yeah, the answer to that's no. And that's really based on, on two things. It's based on the increased mortality rate among males. Okay, and the presumption was, oh my God, testosterone must be the cause. Uh, but there is some literature that uh, the virus attaches to, uh, to testicular cells. It, there are some histologic studies or um, transmission electron microscopic studies that suggest that it actually attaches to the testes. I don't know the answer yet. I think that so much about COVID, you know, we're being definitive about very many things, whether it's hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, or anything else. We're being very definitive when we, we've been studying it for six months. So I think it's impossible to answer the question. We have not adjusted our, um, our strategy based, based on that preliminary data. Another question involves your experience. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your experience with the, um, with the new oral testosterone, Jetanzo? Yeah, uh, actually, I'll be very honest with you. We have no experience with the oral testosterone at this point in time. I am familiar with the data. I mean, it's FDA approved. The data is crisp and robust. Okay. Um, I think that um, obviously oral therapies have a, uh, an attraction to patients, um, given that it's not a messy gel or it's not a patch, it's not an injection. However, there's some things that you need to bear in mind. So you need to bear in mind that um, it's a twice a day dosing. It has to be taken with some fatty food because it gets absorbed through the lymphatics and avoids first pass metabolism in the liver to avoid hepatotoxicity. And I have to tell you that I think that uh, we have many patients in our practice who will struggle to remember to take a pill twice a day, uh, middle of the day and in the evening. So um, I'm looking forward to gaining experience, but I have no direct experience using that. Um, but listen, it's another tool in an armamentary. The testosterone therapy discussion used to be very simple, right? It used to be a shot or a gel or a patch, right? Now it's shots, gels, shots, long, short-term, uh, generic versus non-generic. It takes time. Um, but I think it's good to have a different, um, different levels of experience, or different, uh, different strategies that we can offer patients because patient preference is key. Uh, just one quick comment on transnasal or intranasal testosterone, nay, nay testo. Uh, I know Ranjit Ramasamy has been doing some work looking at preservation of FSH levels. I remain unconvinced that there is um, that that strategy is specifically geared towards preserving fertility, and I don't know that that data has been controlled for T levels, for example. Do they have lowish T levels, and there's a less suppression of their FSH? So I'm on the fence about that. I'm interested in seeing how this pans out. Obviously, if that was the case, then that would be a strategy that you'd use a long time alongside clomiphene and HCG for fertility preservation. But I think the data is not clear just yet. Another um, listener asked, what is your regimen for uh, testosterone res uh, measurement in patients on IM testosterone therapy? Yeah, so uh, we will do their first shot in the office. That's 60 milligrams. Uh, they're taught how to do that, whether it be gluteal or, um, or thigh, uh, basal lateralis injection. Then they do three other injections at home every week, every seven days. Uh, and then we get a peak level uh, 24 hours after the fourth injection. So we're looking for equilibration in the blood um, and we want them getting a skill set uh, up and running before we do their levels. Um, we insist on them doing their uh, injection on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, so that the lab is open the next day. Um, patients, I oh, do it on the weekend, do it on Saturday. Well, no labs are open on Sunday, so now you don't really have a peak level. 
Uh, most people are, most clinicians are measuring a, a mid-level, a mid-range mid level. So on day three or four after the injection, we tend not to do that. I want to know what the peak is. It is my belief that the hyperestrogenism and polycythemia are at least significantly related, not completely related to the peak levels, okay? And uh, we have some data to suggest that our peak free T levels may in fact be predictive of, of polycythemia. So we check a peak level. Um, I think you need to check a level. I think you, you may know that there is a staggering percentage, 25 to 30% of men on testosterone therapy who never have testosterone labs checked. Now that's not by urologists. That's in the primary care setting predominantly or endocrinology setting, but it's crazy stuff. So uh, just make sure you're getting levels. I think that just use your clinical judgment when you're gonna do that patient uh, availability, and then use your best judgment to decide how to manage their T levels. I would strongly encourage you to get a total and a free T level, especially if you have accurate um, assays. Okay, great. We have time for a couple more questions. The next one comes from Ranjith Ramsley. Why do you think there's more polycythemia with injections compared to gels? Yeah. So again, it goes back to, you know, what causes the, uh, what's the uh, pathophysiology of, of polycythemia? Is it the peak level? or is it the uh, C average over the course of the cycle? So we're using really low doses of T. We're using 60 milligrams. And um, I'll tell you, we've seen a staggering drop in our polycythemia rates when we drop from 100 starting, milligrams starting dose to 60. And we have, most of our patients have a normal total and a normal free level using equilibrium dialysis and free. Uh, most of the patients have a normal level and we've just seen a dramatic drop in polycythemia rates. The other thing to be cognizant of, and this is like, really hot off the press, this is a hot topic in, in men's health right now, is that when you see somebody who's polycythemic, what's our natural reaction? It was typically send them to see a hematologist. What we do now is we don't send them to see a hematologist. If their T levels are normal, their total and their free levels are normal, therapeutic range on T therapy, we give them sleep apnea questionnaires. We give them the Epworth sleepiness scale and we give them the um, stop band questionnaire. And if they have medium to high risk, then they're scheduled to get a home sleep apnea test. We will not give them tea without having that, all right? And the reason for this is an increasing appreciation by us. Dan Shosky's just published a paper in the Journal of Sexual Medicine linking polycythemia to sleep apnea. And of course, sleep apneas are not getting REM sleep. They're not oxygenating at night and therefore they're becoming polycythemic. So I would strongly encourage you as clinicians, if you see somebody polycythemic on tea with normal tea levels, that you first get a sleep apnea analysis. And we've had patients who for five, six years were getting recurrent phlebotomy for the polycythemia. We diagnosed them recently with, with sleep apnea. We put them on CPAP and their polycythemia has gone, vanished, disappeared completely. So I think be very cognizant of that. That's a very good strategy. If they don't have sleep apnea, if they've recurrent polycythemia, then your strategies are uh, stop T. Most patients don't wanna do that. Drop their T dose or do regular phlebotomy. In those cases, we'll get them to see a hematologist to make sure that they don't have some underlying hematologic problem. In the vast, vast majority of cases, the hematologist writes back and says, it's his testosterone that's causing it. He has no underlying hematologic problem. Okay, great.